Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. A note to listeners. Since we recorded this discussion, candidates Dave Cavell and Chris Zanettos have dropped from the race, each pledging support to candidate Jesse Mermel. Cavell and Zanettos will still be on the ballot given the timing of their announcements. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, nine. That's the number of Democratic candidates on the ballot running to be the next U.S. representative for Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. The seat, currently held by Congressman Joe Kennedy III, opened up back in November when Kennedy announced his run for U.S. Senate against Senator Ed Markey. COVID-19 has made in-person campaigning difficult for these nine Democratic candidates and for their would-be constituents looking to make an informed choice. That's why we've invited all of the candidates to take part in a special three-part under-the-radar Congressional Candidate Forum. All nine agreed to be randomly divided into three groups of three. Later in the show, the Washington, D.C. football team will soon have a new name, finally dropping a slur Native Americans found offensive. Some Massachusetts schools have followed suit, dropping names and customs that have long been controversial. Are Native Americans finally being heard? And will this moment of racial reckoning become permanent change? But first, joining me remotely for part three of our congressional forum, Jake Auchincloss, Newton City Councilor, U.S. Marine veteran, and former senior manager at Liberty Mutual's Innovation Lab. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me. Dave Cavell, former speechwriter for President Barack Obama and former Assistant Attorney General and Senior Advisor to Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey. Hello, Dave. Thank you, Callie. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you and Jake and Chris. And Chris Zanettos, tech entrepreneur and board member of the Advanced Cybersecurity Center. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks, Callie. Great to be here. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of the two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall and David Rosa. So let's begin. I'll start with you, Jake. America is battling several pandemics, the infection, the economy, and the battle for racial justice. With so many issues to tackle, which would you prioritize that directly address your fourth district constituents' concerns, but also addresses the current national global issues? Well, when your house is on fire, I don't think you can prioritize which room to put the fire out in. You've you've got to bring a bigger hose. And instead of bringing a bigger hose right now, Washington, D.C. and the Trump administration has brought corruption, incompetence and, and malign neglect. We need a vigorous plan for COVID relief and recovery. Number one, relief for state and local budgets and for working families, uh, and especially to prevent education cuts at a time when our kids are most vulnerable. And then we need a plan for COVID recovery to get back on our feet together with a plan that is truly inclusive and a plan that makes sure that no family is left behind. I've, I've 
done that work already as a candidate for Congress, uh, putting forward a life sciences manufacturing plan that makes sure that families on the South Coast in particular have access to the good, high-paying jobs that are going to be increasingly in demand uh, as we get out of this crisis. Same question to you, Dave Cavell. Well, you know, you're right. We're in the midst of a whole bunch of crises. And that's why I think we need to send somebody to Congress who's actually been in these fights uh, and won them, right? So let's start with education. I mean, we're going to talk about school reopenings and and schools are facing massive budget shortfalls because Mitch McConnell told them to go bankrupt. I don't just care about public public education. I was a fourth grade public school teacher in the South Bronx. I don't just not like Trump. I, I helped sue him 50 times when I was working with more Healy, you know, not taking a dime of dark money, only candidate to commit to do that. And so, uh, you know, yes, it does have to start with COVID. We need to pass a, you know, a Green New Deal and recognize, you know, to, to your point, uh, Callie, about systemic racism, it infects everything. I mean, George Floyd had COVID at the time of his murder. Uh, the healthcare rates, uh, we saw enormous uh, racial disparities in them before this pandemic that have only been exacerbated. Uh, climate justice is one of the quintessential questions of how we combat the climate crisis. You know, I, I think that there, there's a whole bunch of work that we need to do. We can't just focus on one issue at a time, and I'm ready to do that. All right, Chris. Kelly, thanks. So you're absolutely right. We, we have multiple crises that we're dealing with. And uh, in many ways, I would agree with Jake and, and with Dave. The first thing we have to do is we've got to address the healthcare side of the pandemic. We've got to make sure that everyone has healthcare coverage, um, that we have a strong safety net to cover everybody, uh, that we don't take away the private insurance that people do enjoy and like. Um, we've got to make sure that we appropriately fund our schools. Um, as well, we've got to take this opportunity, um, a, a sort of awakening in parts of the United States that we must address systemic racial prejudice. When we look at all these crises, the one that we need to also keep in mind is that we can't achieve social justice without economic justice. We have to invest beyond uh, our current investments in education to train our people for the jobs of the 21st century. This is something that I've not only done by creating three companies and hundreds of high paying jobs here in Massachusetts, I'm the only one in this race who actually knows how to create jobs because I have. This is key, and I think what we need down in Washington are people who not only understand the economic and technology uh, drivers of inequality, but actually get things done. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Jake Auchincloss, Dave Cavell, and Chris Zanettos, three of the nine Democratic candidates running for Congress to represent Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District, a district that includes parts of Bristol, Middlesex, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Worcester counties. Whoever wins the Democratic primary will then face one of the two Republican candidates also running for the seat, Air Force veterans Julie Hall and David Rosa. Now that brings me to my next question, and I'm going to start with you, Chris. All nine of you fourth district candidates are from Newton, Brookline, or Wellesley, the northern, and it's fair to say wealthier part, of the fourth district, which also includes, as I've said, the less wealthy towns of Fall River and Taunton. None of you can win this race without big support from those cities. What issues specific to them do you pledge to address if elected? Sure. Thanks, Kelly. So um, I'll come back to education. It is uh, clear, and I've seen this in my work with six Boston public schools, where we've been able to uh, make opportunity more visible to 800 uh, middle school students, that there is layer upon layer of obstacle for children in lower income communities uh, to get access to educational opportunities. Let's just look at internet, right? The internet access 
in uh, lower income communities is far worse than up where all of the candidates live. This is something that makes a huge issue and impediment for the kids. My daughter actually learned a lot of calculus in high school on the web. Well, kids in Fall River can't do that. They just don't even have access if they can even afford it. Number one, invest in science, technology, engineering, and math curriculum and experiential learning in K through 12. The next is we've got to deal with healthcare access and not just access to good insurance, but access to good quality healthcare services. We've got to invest in healthcare community centers so that our residents can get access and invest in transportation, public transportation, to enable them to uh, get to their healthcare services, but also to access education. When I was talking with the principal of Resiliency Prep down in Fall River, he told me that the kids can't stay late to work because the bus lines don't run frequently enough for them to get home. These are the sort of issues that I think, and when I am biking through all the towns in, in the district, I hear them say, we need transportation fixed, we need health care, um, and we need to make sure that we have opportunity. Dave Cavell. Well, Callie, you're right. Incomes in the northern part of the district are three times higher than in, in the southern part of the district. Uh, high school graduation rates are 98% in Wellesley, 73% in Fall River. And look, this is why I got into politics, because I saw income inequality every single day in my classroom teaching fourth grade in the South Bronx. And if you're serious about income inequality, you got to understand that addressing it comprehensively and intersectionally um, has to recognize that income inequality is related to systemic racism. And so when we say that Black Lives Matter, we have to act like it by addressing it comprehensively. So if you're serious about in income inequality, yes, you need to support a Green New Deal. You need to make Fall River the leader in Atlantic offshore wind, second deepest water port in New England. The Brayton Point site in Somerset has to be the driving force of, of the clean energy economy. You need to support ending redlining, uh, which is ongoing not just something that happened in our past, and build more affordable housing and ask wealthy Americans to pay a little bit more uh, instead of the Trump tax cuts uh, to, to do that. You need to finish South Coast Rail. Uh, you need to revise funding formulas in school districts so it's not all based on property taxes and income inequality. And then I also just want to mention the opioid crisis very quickly, Callie, because I know this is something that, that you've actually written a lot about. And you know, when I got into this race, I made a promise to a lot of families I'd come to know in the attorney general's office on the South Coast. These are parents who had buried their children. These are grandparents who are now raising grandchildren. And they asked whether I would get to work uh, on this. They said, it's great that you're running. We need a voice like yours in Congress. But will you work on these things that we've asked folks to work on for a long time and haven't been delivered on? And so my answer, of course, was yes. I'm going to keep that promise uh, on my website, davecavell.com. You can see my opioid plan. Um, but it talks about a whole host of things, uh, you know, and, you know, getting the families and parents the treatment and resources they need, getting prevention education into every classroom uh, for young people so that we stop this, the, this uh, addiction before it starts. Uh, and then also, Callie, uh, took on the tough issue that I know you've worked on as well of uh, safe consumption sites. Look, this is a tough issue. Uh, I, I took a, you know, initially I was a little skeptical. And then I looked at the data, as I know you have too. And I warned folks that this is a that this is a tough um, story about sexual violence, but I was talking to a woman uh, on the South Coast who said that every single time she used, she expected to be sexually assaulted. Every single time. Uh, and she said, you know, I'm struggling with a disease. Don't I deserve some dignity while I do that? Uh, and so in looking at the data and in talking to people on the front lines of this crisis, uh, I, my answer has to be yes. Uh, and, and this is why I've worked with folks like Joanne Peterson at Learn to Cope in Taunton. And for anybody listening, please know there's help available. Go to Learn to Cope's website, go to the Mass Substance Use Hotline, find the help that you need, and know that I'm going to work on this in Congress. 
All right, thank you. Jake Auchincloss. There are two priorities for the South Coast in my conversations with uh, prominent lawmakers and with local elected officials and, and, uh, and constituents. One is local budget relief. When I talked to Paul Coogan, mayor of Fall River, and someone I'm proud to say has supported the campaign, uh, he's having to make impossible trade-offs. And he's having to make impossible trade-offs because the Trump administration has so incredibly failed at every turn to handle this pandemic in a way that could have prevented untold deaths and the cratering of our economy. Cities and towns throughout the Massachusetts Fourth are having to make cuts to education programming and to infrastructure development. We're seeing in Taunton uh, that they've laid off teachers and we need to get them the budget relief that prevents those impossible trade-offs. And that's a pledge that I make uh, to people like Mayor Coogan. And second, we've got to transition to a clean energy economy, an economy that works for everyone, an economy that makes sure that everybody has access to affordable health care that they deserve. Uh, Pat Haddad, who's the uh, state representative from parts of the South Coast has been one of the key champions of offshore wind and has been a clarion voice on the importance of transitioning to an environmentally sustainable future. She also uh, has supported my campaign because she knows that with me, she has a partner in Washington, D.C. to make, make offshore wind a reality. I don't think there's any candidate in this race who doesn't support offshore wind for the, for the South Coast. It's a no-brainer. But there's one candidate in this race, me, who has the relationships and who has started doing the work already to actually create a clean energy economy that works for everybody in the South Coast. Okay, thank you. Um, next question. Everybody in this race is heavily credentialed with stellar academic backgrounds, solid records of service, community or military, impressive leadership roles. So what makes you uniquely qualified to represent this district in a way the other candidates aren't? Starting with you, Dave Cavell. Huh. Well, you know, look, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, it, it's one thing to talk about these issues. Um, it's another to have actually um, worked on them and gotten them done. Um, and so, as I mentioned, that's the case in public education. I'm the one in this race that taught in a public school classroom. And when we talk about teacher layoffs, I was the one that was actually in Taunton at, that, at the protest that the teachers put together um, to demand funding from Washington. And, you know, I, again, we talk about how terrible Trump is. We agree. Uh, but this is why I went to an office where we, I sued him. Uh, and where we beat him uh, on the family separation policy, on the Muslim travel ban, on environmental regulations, on stopping offshore oil drilling off the Atlantic coast. You know, it's why I put together an actual panel with the fishing industry and mayors on the South Coast about Atlantic offshore wind and, you know, actually worked in the federal government. So I actually know how to get that done. You know, I think on so many of these issues, Callie, it's, it, you know, we need to send somebody to Washington who knows how to talk about this work uh, and build the coalitions that we need to get this done. I mean, we've been right on these issues for a long time. Uh, but I think what I've seen um, is that, you know, we just haven't been very good at explaining why we're right. So we need somebody who can do that. Uh, but I also think that there are clear distinctions in this race. Uh, you know, I mean, I, in the AG's office, I was investigating ExxonMobil, who spends tens of millions of dollars every year buying elections because they know they can't win them straight up. And I'm the only candidate who's pledged to disavow dark money and super PAC money because the seat's not for sale and we need to lead by example. And for instance, I can't say that about Jake. I mean, Jake has a super PAC funded by his parents that's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in this race. I'm not taking a dime of fossil fuel money or police union money. And if we're serious about overturning Citizens United and getting dark money out of politics and passing H.R. 1 and saving this democracy, I think we need to lead the way here in the 4th Congressional District in a Democratic primary. My goodness. I mean, we can't just talk about Citizens United uh, when it's convenient. We've got to talk about it all the time. We need to lead the way. 
Uh, and I think on so, so many of these issues, that's what you can see I've done. That's what I will do. And that's why, you know, we've built a campaign that I'm really proud of and it's gotten so much support. Uh, same question, Jake. Yeah, I, I'll answer this in two ways. First, I want to respond to, to Dave's comment there. I, I think the line that, you know, we've been right on these issues for so long, we just haven't been good at explaining why, is exactly the kind of presumption that has turned off a lot of voters uh, from the Democratic message. We as Democrats need to work really hard to meet voters where they're at and not condescend to them. And I think language that says basically, hey, we're right, you haven't figured it out yet, but just we'll, we'll tell you why is exactly uh, the wrong type of political messaging that we need post-Trump. We need to build coalitions. And that's been what my career has been. Uh, I have built coalitions as a city councilor in Newton on issues like housing and transportation, immigration and the environment, tough issues, taking tough votes to actually make real substantive progress on the ground. Why I was endorsed by Progressive Newton for my third term as a city councilor, because they'd seen uh, that at the, at the crux of the matter, I'm there to actually do the work. Um, and I've also led in crisis and led coalitions in crisis. As a Marine officer, I commanded Americans from all walks of life overseas, first in Afghanistan and then in Panama. Uh, I know what it means to, uh, have to have to make decisions that are life or death and have to make decisions under intense stress and uncertainty. We are in a crisis as a country right now. We need the toughness to overcome that crisis, and then we need to be able to build the coalitions to heal this country afterwards. All right, Chris. So, Kelly, um, you're right. There are nine uh, good candidates in this race. They're all good people. Um, and in many ways, uh, our views of the issues, they're very well aligned. What really differentiates the candidates is the experience and the leadership experience that they've had and that they'll bring down to Washington. And what's important for voters to figure out is exactly what kind of experience do we need in Washington for the next two years? As we continue to manage the pandemic, move closer to a vaccine, it's clear that we have to address our economy's catastrophic uh, reduction, right? We have seen um, over 20% unemployment. That stretches even up to Easton where there's 17 to 18% unemployment in our district. Now more than ever, we need people who understand how to create jobs, and how to um, enable people to access those jobs. There are only six people in Congress who have any experience in the 21st century economy doing this. And there are none in this race, except for me. So if people believe that what we need to do is rebuild our economy, rebuild it better than it was before. And by the way, we can't just wave a wand and have the Green New Deal magically make jobs. We have to have people who understand how businesses work, how jobs are created, and who've actually gotten things done. And I think I would, I would support some of what Jake is saying about what we need to do as Democrats. We need to get things done. And that's important for people to look at the leadership styles and what people have done. When I see a problem in education, I don't make a speech and I don't write a white paper about it. I take action. When I saw the pipeline for my, for my company for hiring was not diverse, I went to work and built relationships with six Boston public schools to make the opportunities of the tech world more visible and accessible to children of color and people from lower income backgrounds. When I saw that we had 9,000 unopened, uh, unfilled cybersecurity positions in Massachusetts because every company was looking for four-year college degrees, I brought people together who didn't normally work together, State Street Bank, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, along with Mass Bay Community College, 
to get investment of a half a million dollars from companies to, to expand the one-year cyber certificate program to enable people who couldn't afford a four-year college degree get access to the good jobs. We need people who don't just talk about coalitions, don't just build coalitions with people who think just like them, but who reach across the aisle, bring people towards us, and build win-win solutions instead of the zero-sum game in Washington. This is what I've done in my, pub my public service. This is what I've done in my career. And I think if people look for that sort of experience, that I'm the candidate for them. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is part three of our Congressional Forum. I am here remotely with candidates Jake Auchincloss, Dave Cavell, and Chris Zanetos. Callie, do you mind if I jump back in here? This is Dave. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, uh, you know, look, I, I just would like to respond very briefly um, because I think, you know, something that was just raised about, you know, how we've been right on these issues as, as Democrats. I mean, look, we're in a Democratic primary uh, here in the 4th Congressional District. I know Jake was a Republican until a few years ago. And so uh, I know that there are folks who donate to him and to Mitch McConnell uh, for some reason. But I've actually always been a Democrat. Uh, and uh, I've always believed in LGBTQ plus civil rights and in women's reproductive rights and in the climate crisis. And yes, that systemic racism is real. And by the way, I do think we are right on these issues, which is why I'm a Democrat and why I'm running uh, for this office. Uh, you know, but I think more importantly, talking about these issues the right way is how, in part, we get them done. Because, uh, you know, the, this job, sure, will be new for all of us. Uh, but the work is not new for me. And I saw that when I was working on uh, the Affordable Care Act in the White House. I mean, if you said to folks, uh, you know, what do you think about Obamacare? It turned out only about 40% of Americans liked Obamacare. Then when you said, what do you think about the Affordable Care Act? All of a sudden, 65% of Americans said they like that. They don't like Obamacare, but they like the ACA. And then when you said, well, what do you think about people with pre-existing health conditions being able to buy health insurance? Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, it turned out 85% uh, of people uh, agreed with that. And you see that reflected across these issues. 91% of Americans think that if you want to buy a gun, you should have to pass a background check. 75% of Americans think that the climate crisis is real. So, Kelly, this is Jake Auchincloss. Can I, since I'm being addressed again, can I, can I jump in here? Yes, you can. So, Dave, you started and made a statement. Now I'm going to come to you. If I may phrase the question, then you can take off from there. Jake, uh, some of your critics point out the fact that you've changed your mind a couple of times. First, in a pledge not to accept PAC money, but now you are. Your past political identification has changed one or two times. First, you were Republican, then you're on enroll, then you're registered as a Democrat. How can constituents be certain that the guy they elect as a Democrat today won't change parties once in office and won't change his professed positions on major issues? Feel free to respond to Dave within the bounds of that question. Well, I'm not sure what you're referring to about the, the PAC pledge. Um, I, <laughs> Trust me, if there's anybody in this race who wishes that uh, we didn't have dark money funneling into the race, it would be me. There's a quarter million dollars of outside money spent, um, frankly, spending incredibly misleading statements uh, that, that Dave has parroted here. OK, what, I, just want, I just want you to clear something up. There is a super PAC started by your parents that is supporting you. Am I not? Is that not right? There's a super there's super PAC, but you're implying that I somehow took a pledge that I violated, which is not the case. Oh, so you did not take a pledge that you would not take PAC money? You're conflating two different issues. One is accepting corporate PAC money into a campaign account. The other is the existence of an independent expenditure account. Those are separate 
pledge it. Okay, I'm, I want you to clear it up so that listeners understand. So, but I think what what's happening is that there is a tremendous amount of dark money flowing into this campaign, parroting a lot of the false uh, attacks that Dave has 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 pointed to here. And I think it's important that people who have who know me well, who have seen me in action um, from um, private life and from public life, want to tell my positive story throughout the district, I want to make sure people know I'm someone who's led in crisis as a Marine officer, someone who has built coalitions as a city councilor in Newton, someone who's built sustainable products uh, in the private sector. Uh, and I did support Charlie Baker in 2014. I uh, worked for Governor Deval Patrick, worked for Governor Charlie Baker. Uh, like many Massachusetts Democrats, I'm an Obama-Baker voter. I think Charlie Baker's done a good job handling the COVID crisis. And I think voters should expect that if I'm elected, I will continue to work with Charlie Baker to ensure that we have the COVID relief and recovery that we deserve as a state. So I don't think it's a, a bad thing that I work for Charlie Baker. It's something I point to as, uh, as a sign of good judgment because he has served this state well uh, in, a, in our deepest crisis. All right, Chris, a specific question to you. Um, you're the cybersecurity expert, and we've just heard recently that both China and Russia are tampering with the election. Um, I sometimes think that people don't have a very serious response to the issue of cybersecurity. What can you say as the guy that's on the front lines um, and someone who is uh, presumably bringing this expertise, if you're elected, to Congress about why um, the people in the 4th District need to be paying attention? Well, it, uh, frankly, Kelly, it extends uh, far beyond just the elections. Um, so uh, I've been working in cybersecurity for two decades. I've built uh, two of my three companies are cybersecurity companies. The first time that one of my companies was attacked by a foreign nation was the year 2000, uh, as people were trying to get into the company to find the source code because uh, the FAA and banks and healthcare organizations used our software. Um, I've often gone down to Washington to brief senators and congresspersons, and um, unfortunately, that highlighted to me what I said before, that there are only six people down in Washington who have a professional background in this, in any of the technology areas which are driving our economy and our society. Now, relative to the um, election, um, it is vitally important. One thing that uh, may be counterintuitive that people don't understand is that technology is not always the answer. Paper balloting is actually one of the best ways to avoid tampering. And in addition, um, having a consistent nationwide process is actually, actually makes us weaker, right? We need people who actually who understand those issues, but also understands that issues are systemic and get at the root of the problems. And um, that's why when I, I talk about the economy, um, I point out that we've had this technology uh, a transformation of our economy, which has eliminated a quarter of the middle-class jobs. And we need people down there who just understand those issues, who have experience, real-world experience in those issues. This is what we have to do. This is what I learned in the only thing I've done in politics, which is work for the late Senator Kennedy. Um, and by the way, Dave, I've been a Democrat all my life too. Uh, and what I learned from him is you can fiercely advocate your policies and your values and still find a way to work with Orrin Hatch to get things done. And that's what we have to do. And frankly, I think that's what our people want desperately. Let, let me follow up with you, Chris, and just say you've been described as a moderate Democrat. Um, would you accept that description? And and, and um, you can define it how, how you wish. And, and how do you represent a decidedly liberal district, if that is true? Sure. So 
So Callie, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of labels. People want to call me a moderate. Okay, I view myself as pragmatic. I view my policies as progressive. Frankly, I think everyone in this race, we're, we have very, very close views around um, women's reproductive rights, social justice, um, dealing with the climate crisis, et cetera. It's just how we do it. And I guess if having experience actually creating jobs and companies um, and, and actually working in the private and public sector, creating collaboration, if that makes me a moderate, so be it. And I would say, Callie, that we got to recognize that our district is full of a lot of people. And it's not just Newton and Brookline. And, I, you know, I've got great friends. I've got family in Newton, Brookline. Um, but people in the southern part of our district and the western part of our district who don't see people very often uh, in politics, um, they don't necessarily have all the same views. In fact, I was just out meeting uh, with Tom Mercer, the, the town council president of Franklin. He said, I was the only one who actually reached out to talk to him. And I've actually been out to visit him twice. Um, we've got to have people who represent the entire district that, that support and drive our democratic values, which we all hold dearly, um, but, but represent everyone and bring everyone together to be better together than we are separately. Thank you. Um, Dave, I want to go back to the issue around opiate abuse and, con and the concern about um, the epidemic. And what would you do specifically? Because in this era of COVID-19, it feels a little bit like um, the opioid crisis has gotten lost. In the face of COVID-19, what can you do um, in, if you were elected? Well, you can bring the actual knowledge and experience and background of having worked on the South Coast before. Uh, and, and I certainly will uh, do that by keeping the promise that I, that I mentioned to, to, to those families. Callie, because you're right. I mean, the opioid crisis has fallen off the front page. And we know that during a moment of uh, increasing unemployment um, and, uh, you know, mental health concerns for so many Americans, unfortunately, we know the result. I mean, we're going to lose five people today because of the opioid crisis in Massachusetts. We're going to lose five people tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And that's going to continue until we get somebody in Congress um, who can actually lead and get the federal funding to Massachusetts that we've needed um, and get prevention education to schools and bring the folks from the recovery community to to bear on this issue um, and make sure that we actually don't just talk about this legislation, but get it done. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons we haven't, Callie, um, that's related to these questions that, that we've been talking about is dark money in our politics. But the thing that I think we have not addressed in this conversation is that the playing field has not been balanced. I mean, voting rights are civil rights, but thanks to gerrymandering and voter ID laws, that's why Stacey Abrams isn't the governor of Georgia. Uh, you know, we just lost John Lewis. We're struggling to pass a new Voting Rights Act. We're trying to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. The NRA is blocking it. So on some of these issues, I don't think just capitulating to Republicans is enough here. I think we need to stand up for our values and fight back against dark money in our politics. Uh, and that, that extends to passing these COVID relief plans. I mean, you know, these... these the, oh, by the way, the pledge that Jake violated that you were referencing, Callie, is the no fossil fuel money pledge. Uh, also a pretty important one uh, that I have not violated. Um, and corporations aren't people. We need to get dark money out of politics and help them stop uh, destroying and corrupting uh, this system and make sure that it's impossible uh, to get anything done on these issues. This is why I want to be on the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee when I'm in Congress. Okay. Jake, I want to make sure that you not only get a chance to respond to, to Dave, but... 
Um, in an earlier conversation, I talked to Ben Siegel, and I want you to be on the record to be able, have a chance to respond to what he said. So for my listeners, Ben Siegel, another candidate in the race, has asked that you step down um, based on some comments that you made with regard to the federal flag, describing it as freedom of speech, some posts you made implying that uh, Cambridge and renaming uh, Columbus Day as Indigenous Day was 2PC. All of that in the context of the time that we're in now when we're examining issues around uh, racial justice and systemic racism. And for that reason, Ben Siegel said you should step down. So I want to make sure you have an opportunity to respond both to Dave and to Ben Siegel. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of the radio bandwidth responding to these repeated attacks from Dave and Ben and, and others in the race. I think what we're seeing, and I get it, we're in the last couple of weeks of, a, of an intense campaign, is we're seeing a huge amount of incoming political fire on the candidate who's setting the pace in this field, setting the pace by building a full district coalition, not just a strong base of support in Newton from um, my progressive colleagues on the city council who have seen me in action for five years, but also a strong base of support in the South Coast from Mayor Paul Coogan, from Representative Pat Haddad, Representative Carol Fiola and Paul Schmidt. These are people who are disinterested in caddy attacks and are really interested in who can get results for their constituents in Washington, D.C. And like I said, I get it. These, these political attacks are part of the job, and they're especially part of the job when you're setting the pace for the others. Uh, but what I'm focused on is continuing to build this full district support, continuing to deliver excellent constituent services for people in Newton and for people in the full district once I take office, and uh, for taking the fight to Trump and his dangerous, hateful agenda. Because we've got to remember, uh, whatever happens in this primary, that on September 2nd, we have one goal. We have got to unseat the worst president in American history, and we have got to heal as a country and to build back better, as Joe Biden says. Well, uh, Jake, what is a what's your, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding about you? You you refer to the incoming you're getting, but um, there's been a lot of it, and I'm not, and I don't think it has just to do with we're coming to the end of the campaign. So, so how would you? Why don't you address that? Well, I think there's been a lot of mudslinging from the other candidates, and like I said, that's part of politics, and it's especially part of politics in the final few weeks. Uh, I think uh, when you've got a long track record in public service. Uh, you're going to open yourself up to people misrepresenting your record. And again, that's just part of part of being in politics and and, and of having your, your votes and your speeches on the public record. And I fully accept that. I welcome scrutiny. I had an hour-long conversation with the editorial board editor of the Boston Globe and was proud to have the Boston Globe's endorsement uh, based on my record and was happy to answer follow-on questions that she had. I think that scrutiny is healthy. But what I've been overwhelmed by as I've talked to people throughout the district, as I talk to state and local elected officials, is how exhausted they are by the cattiness of politics and the skullduggery of politics these days and how much they want somebody who can just get stuff done, who has experience leading Americans from all walks of life in times of crisis, who has experience building coalitions on challenging issues, who has experience building actual products for an environmentally sustainable future. People are looking... Uh, to get beyond the last four years' worth of mudslinging and to get ourselves to a higher plane of political discourse. All right. Well, thank you. I want to thank all of you for joining me today, and good luck to to you in the last uh, days of this campaign. Thank you I so much, it. Cal. Thank you, Cal. 
Jake Auchincloss is a Newton City Councilor, U.S. Marine veteran, and former senior manager at Liberty Mutual's Innovation Lab. Dave Cavell is a former speechwriter for President Barack Obama and former Assistant Attorney General and senior advisor to Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey. Chris Sanettos is a tech entrepreneur and board member of the Advanced Cybersecurity Center. And that concludes our three-part Congressional Forum series. You can listen to the entire three-part forum right now on WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Coming up, Black Lives Matter protests this summer spurred individuals and institutions to begin the process of dismantling the vestiges of systemic racism. And that includes revisiting a history of offensive cultural representation of Native Americans. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. The Washington, D.C. football team will soon have a new name, finally dropping a slur, Native Americans found defensive. Some Massachusetts schools have followed suit, dropping names and customs that have long been controversial. Black Lives Matter protests this summer spurred individuals and institutions to begin the process of dismantling the vestiges of systemic racism. And that includes revisiting a history of offensive cultural representation of Native Americans. Are Native Americans finally being heard? And will this moment of racial reckoning become permanent change? Joining me remotely, Darren Edward Lonefight, enrolled member of the three affiliated tribes of North Dakota, which include the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. And he's also a faculty member of the American Studies Department at Dickinson's College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Darren. Hey, thanks for having me. Dosha, Montegrans, Dosha, Awanachbaga, Dosha, Anachbaga to all the people out there. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. So, this is a conversation about. Uh, representation and why it matters. I think people have heard that expression, representation matters. Um, And maybe they've heard it uh, thinking about it in a more positive way, but we also need to look at what happens when there are negative uh, representations and the impact. So I wanted to have a time to, you know, really stretch out with you to talk about what some of the name changing and the controversy around the appropriation of Native imagery has meant and does mean uh, in this moment. So first, let me start this way. Everybody looks to the team in Washington as a significant moment when that had to change or did change a few weeks ago. It was shocking. Mm -hmm. So just to set the stage, here's a clip from ABC 7 News. This is back in 2013, stating why Washington football team's owner Daniel Snyder wouldn't change the offensive name. 
In an interview with USA Today, Snyder says, quote, we'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use caps. It's a strong statement given it's the first time team management has commented on the brewing controversy to change the name from what some say is offensive to Native Americans. But most football fans don't see it that way. A nationwide AP poll shows a whopping 79% of fans think skins should stay. Many here in the district are in that category. I don't think they should change it. I mean, it's tradition. It's where we grew up. It's how we know the team. It's not offensive. It's traditional. It, uh, it's an honor to bear the uh, Indian heritage name. Snyder, too, cites tradition when discussing a name change, saying Redskins fans understand what it's all about and says they are fortunate to be working on next season, something Snyder shouldn't count on next year. Any cash coming from lifelong fan Rashawn Gaskins. I'm not going to buy anything that says Redskins on it. That's like having the N-word on it. So that just sets the table, uh, Darren. Respond, if you will, and put it in context why this was a big deal that this change happened. Well, it's a big deal partially because uh, Dan Snyder is just stubborn as hell. So it was um, <laughs> it took a tremendous amount of pressure in order for this to change. And you can sort of see that um, insofar as there's actually some similar resonance to the University of North Dakota when they changed their name from the Fighting Sioux to what is now the Fighting Hawks. Um, there was this kind of push to do the same thing, which is just kind of a fine, then we won't have anything. And so they just uh, stripped it away and then there was nothing there. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where it stands right now. And so the Redskins term itself has a fairly long history and it, it kind of situates itself right in the nexus of three kind of tropes about Native people, um, kind of variously called uh, the myth of the merciless savage, the myth of the noble savage, and the myth of the vanishing Indian. And so the, the use of this term Redskin at least popularly within American culture, really dates to probably, at least to my mind, James Fenimore Cooper, who wrote the Leatherstocking Tales and other kind of vanishing Indian stories. He, at the end of Pioneers, has one of his Indian characters intoned that, you know, in this land there will soon be no more redskins. And so this popularizes the term in some sense, and it puts it in that particular context of the sort of vanishing race. Um, shortly thereafter, and very shortly after the Wounded Knee Massacre, Frank L. Baum, uh, famous for the Wizard of Oz series, wrote a couple of editorials for the Ab for an, a newspaper in Aberdeen, as I recall, in South Dakota, um, more or less calling for the extermination of the remaining uh, so-called Redskins. And so that term comes and enters into the public consciousness in America, kind of in that context, both kind of adjunct to calls for genocide and also following on and precipitating various Indian wars that were going on at the time. So that's the cultural context of it. But the individual, the visceral response to uh, Native Americans, you know, hearing this over and over, over every year while the protest, this has been an ongoing protest for mm -hmm. decades and no movement. Uh, what, speak to that, because I'm, I'm interested to know, where were you when you heard that finally this was going to change? I got a little WhatsApp message from my father, uh, William Harjo, who said, you know, they're changing the name, uh, the Redskins name. Um, and we were just kind of surprised. I mean, it was a kind of a shock. However, I mean, I would like to, you know, sort of call out Suzanne Shon Harjo, who's been working on this issue in particular and sort of logos and representation for Native people for a very long time, since at least the 60s. And she's been on the ground and she's been spearheading this campaign. And she deserves a lot of recognition for that work. Uh, yes, I met her uh, at a journalist convention years ago, and she and, and I remember that was my first time having a real conversation uh, and understanding of, of what this was all about. 
And we should be clear that a lot of this movement um, by Dan Snyder, the team owner, had to do with money because uh, in this moment of racial reckoning, a lot of the sponsors of the team and uh, those that uh, otherwise supported the team said, uh-uh, we're not, we're not, this is the moment. We're not going forward anymore. And so he didn't really have any choice unless he wanted to lose millions and millions of dollars. Right. And that's often the case. So, I mean, again, this parallel with the University of North Dakota, the NCAA ended up making a ruling in, uh, regarding um, teams that could host tournaments and so forth, um, which is an incredibly lucrative revenue source uh, for college sports in general and for UND in particular. And so very similar, right? I mean, it ends up being these financial pressures that ultimately cause these changes. But the effects, the negative effects, while they're constantly repeated, are often not taken into account. And it's it's sort of unfortunate that does it does end up being this kind of financial incentive that that finally makes something happen. And so part of the problem with mascots, especially in sports, is that sports is a particular kind of arena where you can put a lot of negative energy onto a symbol that represents a team. When that sign, that symbol is a person or a representation of a people, you run into the problem of fans, fanatics, who invest their fanaticism into denigrating these symbols of their of their opposing teams and their rivalries and so forth also are doing this to a representation of a people an extant people and it's injurious and also you know most of this imagery does not necessarily reflect kind of contemporary indigenous experience or people and so it also becomes this kind of false uh, mark of authenticity for what indigeneity looks like so the chicago blackhawks said their nickname actually honors a real-life Native American, and so therefore they're not changing the name. Um, and then on the broader context, a lot of people have said is that the use of the the name and the imagery was in honor of Native Americans. It was not to be offensive, many have said. Mm-hmm. So speak to that. Well, I mean, this this is a pretty common argument, and you know, I don't I don't necessarily doubt the sentiment, um, but I do find it to be. I think just on the face of it, a bit uh, obtuse to respond to someone's concern and hurt by saying, well, I'm honoring you, so this is how it is. If these things, this, for instance, the Blackhawks logo is about us, and I'm using that very generally, obviously not of that tribe, but, um, and it's not by us, then it lacks a certain amount of ability to really represent us. And since, you know, this isn't a team that is emanating from tribal national space or representing um, a tribe in particular, this is a logo that is used for branding for a professional sports team that makes a tremendous amount of money. And, you know, using that brand logo, um, and again, you know, with the sort of imagery of a people, that this is something that is, again, problematic. To allow that to be purposefully angled at a representation of an important historical figure for indigenous people or for indigenous people writ large or for a comical representation of a cartoon uh, you know, sort of red-skinned Indian um, in the major in Major League Baseball and so forth. You know, these are problematic, partially because of how people engage with sports mascots in particular. So, what we've seen in Massachusetts and in other parts of the country, but uh, specifically certain schools, have now responded to the moment and changed. Most recently, uh, Braintree moved to remove Native American imagery, something called the WAMP logo. I, I wasn't even aware of it. So for the moment, the school's logo will be a big block letter B, and then they're going to, I guess, figure out what they will do. But before that, the WAMP, this is, this is spelled W-A-M-P, will no longer look like a Native American man in a feathered headdress. So right. that's 
what what the what the situation was. So that's gone. That's the most recent one. The warrior nickname for high school sports is not a priority, according to a recent article in Foxborough and other communities. But it is up for discussion. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I do too, and I think it's important to to be having those conversations. I mean, you're running into once again the sort of problem of this kind of defacement of identity in the form of a sort of um, conglomeration of of, uh, uh, of a headdress with uh, sort of northeastern tribal uh, regalia. I mean, these these kind of mishmashes and juxtapositions of various tribes and cultures um, is itself a bit of a problem. So you know, I mean, aside from the fact that using a people as a logo is problematic, um, the logos themselves, even within that context, are are particularly inaccurate and sort of facile. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Darren Edward Lonefight, a faculty member of the American Studies Department at Dickinson College. We're talking about the recent elimination of offensive Native American imagery and what it means in this moment. So, first of all, the legislature unanimously agreed uh, to replace the state seal and motto. As you know, this was a 122-year-old version that uh, Native Americans have been saying symbolized white supremacist violence. Many other people said, no, no, it's, again, it's honoring, whatever, whatever. Um, but finally, the legislature says, you know, we agree. There was there was a unanimous vote. So, yeah, so the Massachusetts state flag, you know, is another example of the use of, of sort of Indian iconography or Indian representation. Uh, the original flag, I think it was a picture of an Indian that said something like, come help us. Um, so the sort of rhetorical use and manipulation of the Indian as a symbol um, really does have a long history. And the, the, as it currently stands, the unfortunate placement of a colonist's sword-bearing arm looking as though it's about to swing down on the head of the Indian is it, it intones a particular amount of violence. I am aware that that is not what its intent was. But, you know, signs and symbols change through time. And what that looks like and represents in the contemporary moment is different than what its intention may have been. And I think it's the responsibility of, of us and as a society to uh, make sure that the signs and symbols that we use to represent ourselves as a country, as a national uh, sort of body, represent our ideals and what we believe and what we hold up. The other thing is that Plymouth Plantation, which is the place where you learn the history of the pilgrims coming to Massachusetts, has decided to change the name. I'm sure it's probably back to where it was before when they landed, um, and that, I thought, was a significant move, and I, I wanted to get your response. Yeah, so so the the changing to Pawtucket is particularly important. I think their response is a really excellent response in terms of them discussing the fact that it's, be, you know, in the pandemic, during the pandemic, with huge conversations about race and representation and so forth. Now, more than ever, is it more important to engage in that particular educational conversation, to engage with these issues and to really reflect and attempt to understand and become better. Yeah, and it, a lot of people are going to go to Plymouth Plantation, and that's that's where they're going to get some history. So yeah. uh, that makes a big difference in terms of both representation of of uh, Native Americans, but certainly for Massachusetts, period. Let's, let's get the story right. So I think that, to me, seemed like a significant move. Mm. We want to talk about positive uh, representation mattering. And so you've been noting, because you know, you're an expert in looking at this imagery, that on television and in some other pop culture arenas, there are some changes made. Uh, one is a Paramount Network's Yellowstone. This is a series that's running now that I actually was not aware of. I'm going to play a clip from it. This is a scene with Thomas Rainwater, played by Gil Birmingham. He's a member of the Comanche Nation, who reveals his intention to buy the Yellowstone Ranch 
owned by John Dutton, played by Kevin Costner. You know, after I interned at Emerson, I worked for Merrill Lynch. I figured it'll take about 14 billion to buy it all. All what? The valley. I'm gonna buy your ranch first, and then I'm gonna pull down every fence. And any evidence that your family ever existed will be removed from the property. It'll look like it used to when it was ours. See, I'm the opposite of progress, John. I am the past, catching up with you. So I would say that that is what, as the kids used to say, flipping the script. What do you say? So the story is still focalized uh, and the point of view is still perspectively through the ranching family. And, you know, the uh, main uh, native actor is really critical and central to the show, but um, ends up it getting uh, what we might call second billing. Gil, Gil Birmingham. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Gil Birmingham. Yes. Um, and in addition to that, you know, there was um, there was some problems with the show at its outset because of a casting choice that was made regarding um, Kelsey Chow, who um, uses her middle name for this and for a previous um, movie that she did called Wind River, where she plays um, native characters. And the actor Adam Beach, who's in Anishinaabe, uh, who was in Wind Talkers, uh, as well as Suicide Squad, Um, He called on Native actors to stay away from this project specifically because um, they chose to cast someone um, with what he considered to be dubious claims to Cherokee ancestry. The Cherokee have uh, researched her claim and and have came out with a statement indicating that there's no record that she is or has been um, an enrolled member of that tribe. So there's plenty of, of indigenous women who would be great for that role. Why didn't they cast that? So that Adam Beach did sort of ask for a boycott of, of the program for that reason. Hmm. There are shows that are doing a better job of, as I mentioned before, making things that are about us that are also by us in really compelling ways, you know, by um, bringing in indigenous showrunners, uh, producers, writers, and things of that nature, which uh, Yellowstone isn't doing. That being said, it is certainly a, a, a big improvement insofar as it's it's in the present day. It's a, it's, it's a contemporary story. So I think that's important because so often I think Native Americans are, are portrayed, you know, in the 1890s or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you don't, you're very you know, you don't get the contemporary story. Yeah, I mean, and there are other shows, too. I'm really excited to kind of see them push out of like, I mean, so we were in the present day. Now we just got to get out of the Western. And then I think we're going to I think we're gold. So. <laughs> All right. So that so then let me ask you about Bark Skins. This is a TV series based on the novel of the same name premiering on National Geographic. I'm going to play a clip and then get your response. OK. Uh, after a room. I, too, actually. He is my equal and will be treated as such. I uh, have the other guest to consider. I wish to be civil in all enterprises, but I will not be denied a proper room for my co-equal Yvonne, though he can't speak for himself. I, he is deadly with that book. I am not his equal in that. My apologies. We were ready to rooms. Thank you. Well, what do you think about bar skins? Yeah, well, so I mean, this is a kind of, we're kind of split in the difference on this one. So we have, um, we have indigenous writers, Mikazi Pensanau is writing for it. He's from the 1491s. Um, they worked really closely with tribal communities in both the construction of the set as well as um, the kind of history and stories of the people and so forth. So a really good example of kind of somewhere in the middle right there. They're working with the communities. It's not necessarily fully written or fully produced. The, the agency of indigenous people on the show itself is more than in Yellowstone, but is it's still not like an indigenously produced and made show, but it does a really good job of working closely with communities. You know, I, I, I really appreciate their attempt to sort of stay close to the tribal communities that they're representing. 
So someone pointed out in a comment about one of these shows that there actually is a contemporary setting where Native American characters are featured, and it's in CBS's FBI Most Wanted. So I'm going to play a clip from that. This is a show featuring Native American characters, which premiered last January. Our family's been passing the hurt in this place from one generation to the next, but that stops today. I make this offering to free this boy from the curse of this place. Who the hell are you? Agent Clinton Sky, Kahnawake. I saw your offering. You broke the cycle of hurt. Don't start another one. He needs you to show him the way. Help him stay on the red road. That's a good place to stand. I never heard of the series. Did you know about this series? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really neat example of um, Native representation in a contemporary setting. And this is something that I think is really critical um, in an urban setting. You know, I mean, 70%, uh, over 70%, so, you know, almost three quarters of all Native people um, within the boundaries of the United States live in urban areas. And so, you know, those are a lot of our stories, but those are the ones that are very often the least represented in sort of this conversation. As you can see, Yellowstone and um, Barkskin, both kind of prestige television, but neither of them set in an urban uh, contemporary moment. The the Rutherford the the Rutherford Falls show that's gonna I, I that's gonna hopefully be coming out is with Mike Schur um, as one of the producers and um, the showrunner is a Native woman. They've got multiple writers on staff for it. I and it's you know contemporary and it's in New York. Um, I am just so excited for this project. I really think that just to prognosticate a little bit, I really think that that show has the potential to be one of the most important shows in Indian country. Um, just because of the sort of virtuosic uh, abilities of Mike Schur, who did A Good Place, this deeply philosophical piece, um, as well as Parks and Rec, which I've, I've written about its handling of, of Native characters being particularly genius. Um, uh, so I'm really excited for that. And that's coming out um, on the Peacock Network, I think. That's their streaming service. And so mm-hmm. when that comes out, I, I would definitely encourage people to check it out because I have really high hopes for it. And the people that are involved in the program are to the last, uh, really, really smart and incredibly funny. And funny is, uh, at least for, for our tribes, is, is an important way that we communicate. So I'm excited to see what they do. All right. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Darren Edward Lonefight is an enrolled member of the Mandan Hidatsa Arukara Nation and is a faculty member of the American Studies Department at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. That's it for this week's show. Find us on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Rebecca Tauber is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.